So being a product of um, Fairfield, California, I have an affinity for the slough. I don't know if you guys know what the, where the sloughs are. Grizzly Island, those things. Yeah, so um, th- it's really fun for me. I have a lot of great memories. Some of you might think the slough and think like old beer cans and trash cans floating on water. It's kind of that too. Uh, it definitely can be. But for us, uh, we grew up in a family that fished. It was a big deal. Now, my dad is over there, and so I can't tell some of the stories I said in first service because I talked about how many big fish I caught, and it was a lie. No, just joking. Um, no, my, my dad is the angler in the family. There's no, there's no doubt about it. He spent countless hours out on the slough, and he would come home with all of these gigantic um, striped bass that he would catch, and he'd come home from work, and they'd be strung up, and we would take tons of pictures of them. And so, so much so, our life kind of revolved around fishing that um, when it came time to do my, my wedding slideshow, I sent my friend a whole bunch of pictures, and, you know, we had to go through the shoe boxes and get anything that possibly had your face in it, or even your backside, whatever you can, uh, because no one took a photo of everything the kid did back then. I don't know. Like right now, if I'm not taking a picture of Ruby right now, I'm already in trouble. And I'm preaching. You know what I mean? It's like one of those things. My wife's like, did you catch Ruby doing that? Like, no. Anyways, it was harder to feel, fill a slideshow back then. So anyways, as we went through all of, the, all of the different things, what we saw and what I found is basically just pictures of me and fish. This is basically all that there is. In the wedding slideshow, that's about all there is. There's pictures of me, a couple of with me and my brother. Most, you know, some of Rochelle and I dating. But even with Rochelle and I dating, we had some fishing in there too, which is pretty good. No, but my dad was quite the accomplished fisherman, and so it was always a real treat for us when um, we got to go out with him. Now, his preferred method of fishing is trolling, but the preferred method that my brother and I had was called the overnight fish. Now, in this, this is where you uh, load in all three boys. So there's three boys in my family and my mom, so four of us. And so all three of us would go in a 10 or 12-foot aluminum boat, depending on which boat it was, and we go fishing all night long in the sloughs. Now, uh, I'm not sure if you can tell, but I'm not slight. <laughs> my dad is six foot. My brother is six foot six. And so, um, you know, we were healthy boys. I'll put it that way. That sounds right. We were healthy boys. And uh, so not, uh, in, a, in, in and amongst the us being together, we also had sleeping bags. We'd have lanterns. We had to have tons of fishing poles. You need to have the fishing poles, not only for the striped bass, but you need to have the fishing poles off the back for the catfish because you had to do all that different stuff. So we were loaded down with gear and um, we had to bring the mini TV. I mean, you know, that had to happen. And, um, you know, all the different things. Now think about this. This is three boys in a, in a, most of the time we had a 12 foot aluminum boat. And what we would do is we would park it sideways and then we would sleep in it kind of curled up as a, in a sea. Sound fantastic? Well, it's pretty good. And what you need to know is sometimes one of those boats had a little bit of a leak in it. And so every once in a while, you know, you just had to step over and just kind of start bailing it out. We had one of those old bedpans from a hospital. That was our, that's what we used. But these are fantastic memories for me. But, you know, as I was reflecting on it, I I think like one of the reasons it was a fantastic memory for me and one of the reasons why I think my mom let it happen is that there was one important piece of equipment on that boat that worked. And that was the anchor. See, we're going out into this boat. Everything that my mom holds dear, I think, I mean, I hope she loves us, is her boys. And all of her boys are going to go out fishing. And what she needs to know and what she needs to have confidence in is that my dad knows how to set an anchor. 
If she has confidence in that and she knows that the anchor is going to do its job, then she can catch some sleep. Now, she'll tell you now she didn't really sleep that much when we were all out there, but, um, and I can understand why now as a, as a parent, but back then it was just bliss. It was wonderful. And so what would happen as you would get, come up to your location, my dad would get us ready and we would, one of us would drop down the anchor and he would go in line with the tide and we would drop down the anchor and he would turn on the motor, put it in reverse and drag the anchor along the rocks until something magical happened. We got down within the rocks and the boat didn't move anymore. Now, when you, you gas it up a little bit, rev it, and eventually it would just embed itself into the rock. Then you could throw a smaller anchor off the front and then pull that tight and you're good to go. And that's how we fished and it was a wonderful time. Um, most of the time, to be honest with you, I, I uh, fell asleep early. Um, I'm not what you call a great sportsman. So there was a mini TV and some hot chocolate in the sleeping bag. I was good. Uh, but my dad was gracious enough to wake me up when fish were on the line. He'd let me catch a lot of his fish for him. And we have pictures of it. So there's that. So you might be wondering, like, why do you start off with a story like that, Adam? You're talking about um, a covenant of promise. And I'm going to be talking about Abram today. Why talk about anchors? Why does that make any sense? It's, it's because I want you to have a word picture. As we go through this text, I want you to have the picture of what it looks like to have an anchor that does its job. Because what happens if you have an anchor that is not fully through the water is you have something that's not an anchor at all. Right? Imagine being in the sloughs and my dad's like, hey, drop down the anchors, but it doesn't actually hit the ground. That's not very smart on his, his part, and it wouldn't give my mom a lot of confidence. Because what would happen is the current would still blow us whichever way it wanted to. It does not blow. It ebbs and flows. And that's what would happen. But I want you to have that word picture. That to be anchored in means to be secure. It means to be steady. It means to go through the waters of circumstance and into that which doesn't change. So I want you to have that picture, and I promise I'll come back to it, and we'll go from there. But our main text today is Genesis 15. Let's read it. I'll give you a second to turn there. And it's a little bit, but we need, we're going to get through the whole thing. So um, here we go. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you had given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river to Egypt to the great river of the river Euphrates. And there's other regions there that I can't pronounce, and so you can read them for yourself. So we have this incredible story in Genesis 15. It happens to be one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be preaching it. Um, but we need to understand a little bit of continuity from Dan's previous messages. We've, we're talking about a series on covenants. And what we need to see is that so far we've covered the covenant um, of creation uh, and the covenant of preservation. Those are the two things that, that that's how we've termed them. And that starts uh, in Genesis and, and the covenant of creation ends or has a, has a promise in Genesis 3 that a seed is going to come after a, the rebellion of man, after the sinful fall of man. God uh, makes a promise that there is going to be a seed yet to come. He follows that along in the covenant of preservation by even though all of the world's population or the vast majority of the world's population was decimated, there was a, an heir, there was a seed that continued. And so what we'll see is that right now, we're going to start in Genesis 15, but you have to remember in Genesis chapter 12, that's where we first meet Abram. And it, there's a continuity there between these covenants. And I want you to see that this isn't a standalone necessarily, although it's a standalone message, but I want you to see how it reacts. After the flood, there's a whole bunch of genealogies in uh, chapter 10 and in chapter 11 of Genesis, and you can trace the genealogy directly from Noah to Abram. And that's important, and there's a reason for that, so that you can see a continuity of the promises made in Genesis chapter 3 and then the promises made in Genesis chapter 9. And so that's really important to understand. And so in, in chapter 15, we'll start with the first verse it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not. And we're going to stop there. Why fear not? And why is God coming to Abram in a vision? Now, to understand that, we have to back up uh, three chapters to chapter 12. And I won't spend a lot of time there, but we need to start there. Because if we're going to talk about the covenant, covenant of promise, it'd probably be a good thing to show you what the promise is and where it started. And it's here in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read it for you. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so what we see here in chapter 12, the end of chapter 11 it's genealogy and it ends with Abram. And now in chapter 12, we have God coming to Abram and giving promises. And this is the beginning. And there are six promises that are made. The first is, I will make you a great nation. The second is, I will bless you. The third is, I will make your name great. The fourth is, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Uh, the fifth is, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the sixth is, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, in addition to the promises, we can see four obligations 
for Abram. Any sort of relationship or covenant has both promises and obligations. That's how you, that's how you can find and know that there's covenant language. And so here are the obligations for Abram. He's to go forth from his country. He has to go forth from his relatives, go forth from his father's house, and go into the land that God will show him. Those are the obligations for Abram, and there's promises from God. Now, we need to say a couple things um, about these, about what happens here in 12. We can't stay here forever. But the first one is, notice who is the initiator in chapter 12. Who comes to who? You'll see right in, the, right in the first verse of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram. So here we have in 11 all these genealogies tracing from Noah, ending in Abram. And now we have God reaching out to Abram and giving promises. Now I think what we're supposed to see in that and what's important for us to see is that Abram is not special. He's a special kind of person, this is true, and he has a special significance in Scripture. But in and of himself as a person, there doesn't seem to be anything in the text to suggest or warrant that he merited a promise in any way, shape, or form. There wasn't anything in him that made God say, oh, you're more worthy of a promise than maybe someone else. What we see here is a, is a level of divine choice. We see God coming to Abram and giving promises. And I think that's really important. It's really important because at, the, at this covenant, it's more about God expressing his pleasure in being able to be gracious to who he wants to be gracious to, as opposed to uh, Abram did something that then made the Lord give him promises. And I think that's important. Um, the other thing that I wanted to notice about this is the word go. It says, now the Lord said to Abram, go. And that word go has special significance in this particular moment because the last time God uttered the word go, it was to Adam and Eve and it was go away from me. That was the last go. And now we have a new go. And now the go is come towards me. Come out of the land in which you were and now come make a movement towards me. And see, we see this is how the covenant is starting to work. There was this promise in Genesis chapter three that there'd be a seed And then that is preserved through Noah. And now we see that God has this this beginning way of redemption that's going to start here, this covenant of promise. And if you you think through to Hebrews chapter 6, we just read it, that there are heirs of the promise. So these promises, we're heirs of it. So we know that it still extends beyond just Abram. So we see that God reaches out and says, I'm going to make for myself a new covenant family, and I'm going to do that starting with Abram. You see that? I think it's important to see that. And sort of the other thing, um, and the final part of of chapter 12 before I move on, and honestly, we could preach a lot on chapter 12, so I'm going to try my best to leave it, is basically everything that's happened in the Bible leads up to this moment, So if you're reading Genesis 1 all the way through, it's now leading up to this. If you were reading the scriptures from beginning to end and you didn't have any idea of what was coming afterwards, you'd be wondering and looking for how is God going to accomplish his purposes? And now all of a sudden you see, here's a promise, a great nation, heirs. Okay, you would see that. And you would also then see that everything in our Bibles after this 
is a flow or some sort of fulfillment of this promise. Now, mind you, that might be an oversimplification uh, of all of Scripture because they have different routes, but more or less, this is sort of the flagpole event of Genesis and really all of our Bibles. Everything in the Bible has been leading up to it, and now everything you read after that is some version of this covenantal promise coming to fruition for his people. So we go in 15. Fear. This is interesting to me that the first word that he gets is fear not because in chapter 12, Abram just got a whole bunch of promises. And he had some obligations and those obligations were to go. And you know what he did? Tells us in chapter 12 that he went. So he left his fathers, he left his land, he left everything that he knew and he went towards the land God would give him. And so those obligations... He, he, he was meeting, he was going. And so usually when we get a promise, and I'll just use our own limited experience, when you first heard the gospel, when you first heard the promise as laid out in the gospel, did, weren't you excited? Weren't you excited about what it meant for you? Weren't you excited about all the ramifications of it? Weren't you excited? Didn't you think you could conquer the world? And then didn't two days later you do something totally awful? Isn't that our experience? Isn't that what we do? We, we're super excited by the promises of God. We hear the gospel. We hear that Jesus is for us, that God is for us, and it, it, and it gives us great motivation and encouragement, and then we mess up. Well, what you don't read here in chapter 15 is that this is exactly what happened to Abram. In chapter 12, he gets all these promises. So I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to do all these wonderful things. And then immediately in chapter 13, we read, he goes to Egypt and he just gave a promise, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have air, you're going to have offspring, you're going to have land, which means that if those promises are going to come true, nothing, that, nothing can happen to him in Egypt really that tremendously bad, right? But he goes through, and in chapter 13 we read about, he, uh, he tells Sarai, his wife, you're really beautiful. Um, you know, she's 75 years old at that time. And um, he's like, you're really beautiful. And the, the people of, the, of, of Egypt, they're going to get jealous when they see you and they're going to they're kill me and they're going to they're take you for their own wife. And sure enough, that's what happens. So what Abraham says is, hey, tell Pharaoh and tell all the Egyptians that you're my sister, not my wife. Right? So he just got all these incredible promises. I'm going to do all these great things for you. And immediately the first thing that he does is falls right on his face. Now, one of the obligations, and, and scholars um, are somewhat conflicted on this, but I, I tend to land on this one, is that there's actually a fifth obligation. That Abraham was supposed to be a blessing. That everywhere he went, he was supposed to be a blessing. That was one of the obligations or one of the, the keeping of the covenant. And I happen to agree with that and imagine, here we are in chapter 13. Hey, man, Here's what you're supposed to, here's all these promises, here's your obligation, bless people. And the first place he goes, curses come to Egypt. Hmm. Not a lot of, uh, you're not feeling too great about yourself. You might be thinking like, man, God, did you make a promise with the right person? So time passes and we see in chapter 15 that the Ab Abram that was spoken to with great promise is now an Abram who seems... I, I, I dare to use the word dejected, or he's struggling in some way. So God comes on the scene and he says, fear not. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So we have to think through what this fear actually means. 
Two things that this fear is not. It's not a fear for his uh, worldly comfort or being taken care of by God. By all estimations, uh, he was the richest man on planet Earth at the time. So I don't think this means to suggest that there is something in there where he's afraid of his ongoing provision. And I certainly don't think it's a fear for his safety because just one chapter prior, he takes 300 men and they go slaughter a whole bunch of people and rescue Lot. So he didn't seem to be physically afraid for his safety and he didn't seem to be uh, afraid for his overall wealth or security. And so he's got this spiritual problem. And, and, and then what is it? Well, if we can think through, God made a promise to Abram and now the promise hasn't come true yet. So he's been more or less walking through life with this understanding that God's going to do some things. And here he is, and it hasn't happened yet. And he's more or less concerned, is it actually going to happen? That's what, that's what I take it to mean. And God comes to him and says in the midst of this, I'm your shield and I'm your ward. Now that is a word that Abram most needs to hear. The word that he most needs to hear is that I, God of the universe, Yahweh, am going to be your shield, meaning I'm going to, be, I'm going to protect you, and I'm also going to be your reward. I'm going to be your inheritance. I'm going to be the thing that you most need. Now, how many of you would be excited if the Lord came to you in a vision and said, guess what? I'm your shield and your reward's going to be good. I know for me, I'd be pretty jazzed. But what do we get from Abram? Abram says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So think for a second. What Abram most needed to hear, God actually told him, but Abram couldn't grasp it in the moment. How often does that happen to us when we come to the word of God, or when we come to church, or we come to certain places of our life, where we, what we most need to hear is openly being declared, but we can't hear it. See, what I want you to see is I want you to see yourself in this, in this promise. I want you to see yourself in the story of Abram because I want you to see the great assurances that it gives us eventually uh, towards the end of the chapter. So he says, hey, I, I most need to hear that, uh, that you're my shield. I most need to hear that you're my reward, but I can't hear those things right now because you haven't delivered on your promise yet. Now, most people's Old Testament picture of God when God says something and we have a question about it or we have like a, you haven't delivered yet, God, we would assume what would happen. Bing! That's like a flick off the face of the earth. But that's not what happens at all, right? No, what happens is we see God who then meets Abram in his moment of struggle. He's struggling in belief. He believes something about God. He believes in the promises of God. He just can't see how it's all going to fit together. And so he's in this spiritual struggle. And in the midst of this spiritual struggle, God says, fear not the first time. And then the second time he protests and he's like, someone else is going to be my heir. And God says, no, he's not. Come outside. Look up. What do you see? How many stars can you see? Because every star you see, that represents one of your offspring. It's too numerous to count. You're not even going to be able to see it. How gracious is that? How amazing is that? That in a moment of weakness, even though God has already declared what he most needs to hear, he takes the time to show him and reaffirm the promise with a picture he can see. Look at the stars. 
And so Abram believes. And verse 6 tells us, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, for anybody who, who, who believes that uh, faith and justification are only a New Testament uh, idea, read this again. And he believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Not righteousness first and then belief. His belief brought about righteousness. Faith, justification, going hand to hand, and we see it here in Genesis 15. It's amazing. That should encourage us. Something really interesting here, and just a quick observation before I move on. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, and he believed in the Lord. What did he have to believe? The Lord. What he said. See, it's very true of us that it might be easy to believe in God. We read the Bible and we think, oh, I believe in God. But then when we start putting ourselves as, a, a, as part of the promise and we see some of the unique ways that we fail, and we see some of the ways in which it doesn't work, how easy it is to no longer believe the Lord. It's much easier to believe in the Lord. And to be sure, you, in order to believe the Lord, you have to believe in the Lord but believing in and believing the Lord are different things. Okay, great. Problem solved, right? Text is, it's over. No, it's not over. Okay, well, what happens here? God reminds him that there's two parts of the, of the promise that he gave him. Not only is there going to be an heir, but there needs to be land also. And so he says, this is God speaking to Abram. I'm the Lord who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And it's like Abram remembers, oh yeah, there's supposed to be land in this promise. And he goes, but he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now here's where Abram makes me really happy. In verse six, we're told that he believes what the Lord says and it's credited him as righteousness. And now the Lord says, oh, about that land, you're going to possess it. And immediately in verse 8, we have Abram now saying, how do I know? Here's what's fantastic about that. You can believe the Lord and still wonder how it's all going to work out. And here's what I think is happening. Because the belief that Abram have, has in God has already been credited to him as righteousness, I don't see this question in verse 8 being related to unbelief. In God. What I see verse 8 being is a question related to Abram. See, there's two great questions we all ask ourselves as Christians, and I think it's been asked from Abram's time on forward. It is, how can I know about God, and how can I know about myself? And here's where I think Abram is hitting on to the how can I know about myself. I believe what you said, God. I know who you are. I believe that you're God, but I don't think I can believe that I'm your person. Because I'm the kind of person that right after you give me promises, I tell Egyptians that my wife is my sister out of fear. And I'm the kind of person that's going to do that again later on with King Abimelech. And I'm the kind of person who's going to want to make this promise happen sooner. And I'm going to sleep with my wife's servant and I'm going to have a child. 
You can almost hear the echoes of this. And how often does this echo our experience in the Christian life? We have these wonderful promises through the gospel. And yet when we see ourselves in it, what do we see? No way, it can't be true. You can't use me. You wouldn't use me. I I would make your promise bad. (laughs) I'm going to foul it up. I'm too old. I'm going to fail. This is what I think that comes from. But here is where I want you to remember Hebrews chapter 6. And I want you to have that mind picture of an anchor that goes all the way down. Because what God is about to do is he's about to help Abram get his anchor all the way down. Through the water of circumstance and into that which doesn't move. And he's going to do it with one of the greatest pictures in all of the Bible. And here's how it comes about. This is God in response to Abram's question. How do I know about me? God says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Question. When did God say cut them in half? Because I think Abram's taking it upon himself here. He's taking some liberties. Because God just says, bring them to me. But somehow, without it being spoken, he's already doing something. Well, why? How? How can Abraham presume about uh, what's about to happen? See, something that the ancient Near Eastern world got uh, much better than we do today is the idea of, uh, of, of, of a contract. See, what would happen back in those days is if you wanted to enter into a contract with somebody because, uh, let's be honest, there was no paper, no pens, and your signature really didn't mean a hill of beans because there was no written language. So it's, you know, in an oral culture, how can you make a contract with someone? How does that work? Well, what works is that you cut a covenant. What you do is you take these animals, you cut them in half, you split them apart, and both parties of the, of the contract walk through, and they say to one another, here's all the things that I'm going to do, here's all the things that you're going to do, And we're going to walk through these pieces and we say to each other, if I don't do what I say I'm going to do, may I be ripped to pieces. Now, that's a lot more effective than signing on a dotted line. Imagine on your wedding day, you make all these incredible promises to your bride. And she goes, well, how do I know that you're going to keep your word? How do I know that you're going to do all these things? And you say, come on back, i got a heifer. Walk on through. Or if you were going to pay your mortgage, or you were about to, you were about to uh, refinance your house, and the lenders gives you 5,000 5, things of paperwork, and there's a notary there, and you go to sign, and the notary's like, oh, no, we're not signing, we're walking. Head on back. Got some rams, some turtle doves spread out for us already. That's way more effective. You might see some marriages last a little bit longer if that was the case. So Abraham seems to know something that we don't know. And I think archaeologically and even um, within the biblical text, we see covenants being struck this way. In Jeremiah chapter 34, we see um, the Israelites who are, are surrounded by the Babylonians and they're, they're, their city is about to be uh, overtaken. And what is happening is that they get, Jeremiah gets a vision and they find out, hey, part of the reason why this this uh, decimation is going to come your way is because you've taken Hebrew slaves and you won't let them go. 
And when they find that out, they're like, oh, let's make a covenant with the Hebrew slaves. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to let them all go. And they do. They let them all go. But chapter 34 tells us that they got pretty bored of that pretty quick. And so they took them all back. One problem. Uh, A little bit further into chapter 34, you read that they actually had walked between the pieces of the calf. Meaning they had struck and cut a covenant before God that they wouldn't take these Hebrew slaves back. Now they do. And what does God say? Your flesh is going to be food for the birds of the air. All those Babylonians that went away, they're coming back and your city is going down. See, God God takes that covenant making really serious. And I think it seems to suggest that in biblical times and, and in that time, this idea of animals being prepared in this way would have been absolutely reasonable and Abram would have thought in his mind, oh, okay, God's going God's to make a covenant and what's going to happen is we're going to go through it. Now, here's the problem. If you're Abram and your question is, how can I know about me? And you're about to have a covenant with God. You pretty much know that as soon as I walk through the pieces, I'm in trouble. Because if I'm not quite sure I'm going to make it, matter of fact, I'm confident I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to be able to keep the covenant. What that means for me is when I walk through it, I'm surely dead. So you can imagine when it says in chapter 12 that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell. Imagine for a second. You're about to covenant with God. You know, you know that you are not the kind of person who's going to be able to keep it. You know you're about to have to walk through these pieces that you just prepared. Dread is going to fall on you too. That's what I think is suggested here. There's a terrible darkness. It would have been a darkness of the soul, an impending dread, an impending doom. And out of the darkness, God speaks. And he tells them that his people are going to be sojourners. And he tells them that um, his, his descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years, but ultimately they're going to be freed. And then he also tells them what's going to happen to him, that he's actually going to live to a ripe old age and, and all of these things that he promised are going to come to fruition. And so God is actually from the darkness declaring some dark things, but then also some promises. He's restating some of the promises. I'm going to do these things for you. And here's where the story takes a turn. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch. Stop there. This word is, these words in particular are hard to translate and they're in different places of the Bible. And the best way to get a sense of what these words are are to think about where else they're used. And this idea of a, of a smoking pot and a torch are the very same words used to describe God's presence on Mount Sinai. The smoke and the thunder and the lightning and the fire of God on the mountain. And they're also the very same words used to describe the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. God's presence amongst the Israelite people. And so what we see is Abram in the darkness. It's now darker All of a sudden, on the scene comes God's presence. You know, 
beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's scared. He's got to be. I would be, te- I would be terrified. I would be petrified. But it's what the presence of God does. He would be surprised enough that the presence of God was there. But what does the presence of God do? The presence of God walks between the pieces. So, in effect, what he's saying is, Abram, everything I've just told you, everything I've just told you, I will be faithful to bring it about. But if I don't, may I be ripped to pieces. If I don't bring all of these things about for you, may I be ripped in pieces. May my unchanging nature be changeable. May my immortality be made mortal. May what seems impossible be made possible that God would die. See, I think Abram is fully and 100% expecting to be the one to walk through the pieces. The ceremony in the cultures would have been something like this. A king would have conquered another kingdom. And the the more uh, mighty king or the king that had conquered would tell the lesser king, let's cut a covenant and you're going to walk through it. And you're going to pay me tributes and you're going to give us, uh, you're going to be our subjects and if you don't, we're going to break you down. So that, that, that king would rarely, if ever, walk through. Most of the time, it's always the lesser one. Sometimes both parties would go through, but I think historically, it's almost always the lesser that goes through. So Abram is already surprised. God is saying, unto his death, I will do these things for you. Does it sound like grace? It's about to get better. Because in chapter, uh, sorry, in verse 18, it says, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, but something really unique didn't happen. Abram didn't have to walk through the pieces. And in the Bible, it's called a covenant here. Some people will say, well, no, both parties have to agree. That's why it's a covenant. So there has to be some sort of agreement. Something had to happen, and so what happens? How does this work? How can it be a covenant? Here's how it happens. God enters as king, but also assumes the punishment for the lesser. So what he's saying, in effect, is, Abram, if I don't keep Everything I've promised to you in my covenant, may my unchanging nature be changeable, may my immortality become mortal, may what is impossible become possible, but if you don't keep it, may it also be of me. Do you see it, church? We have God who takes the place of the lesser. And he says, you, Abram, if you can't keep the covenant, I'm gonna keep it for you. And if you don't keep it, I'm gonna die so that I'll still keep it. Abram would have had to be completely and wholly overwhelmed by this idea I mean, folks, is there a better picture of the gospel in the Old Testament? You're not going to see it. God ripped to pieces 
on behalf of the one who couldn't meet the covenant stipulations? So what did Abram most need in this text? Like I said earlier, he most needed a word from the Lord that says, I'm your shield. I'm your great reward. And guess what happens? God says, let me help you get the anchor of your soul all the way down through the water of circumstance. Are you old? So what? Have I made you wait? So what? Are you going to fail? So what? I won't. I won't fail. I'm going to complete my purposes. I'm going to accomplish my purposes through you. So what do we see? We see Abram who was, who was shackled with a self-doubt. How do I know this about myself? All of a sudden, in that moment, when God takes the place for both of them, what other option does he have but to plunge the anchor of his soul through the water of circumstance into the rock which never moons, namely God's character and his nature itself? And now here's the incredible part. Hebrews chapter 6 says that God did this. Hebrews 6 was written looking back on this event. And it said, he wanted to make known the unchangeable nature of his character for who? For the heirs of the promise that they might have an anchor sure and steadfast for their soul. So what does that mean for you, Christian? That same anchor plunges through the water of whatever our circumstance is through whatever self-loathing, self-doubt, whatever is going on in our life, and it forces the anchor to go down. And in this case, reading backwards, we know that the anchor is Christ. See, the covenant given centuries ago, the covenant of a promise extends to us today. And imagine a God who not only knew in that moment what he was saying to Abram, but it says in Hebrews that he knew what he was doing for our benefit Show me another God like Yahweh. You can't find one. You can't do it. God is glorious in every way. And what do we get to do? Participate in the promise. And what should that do for us? It should give us a great assurance about who we are. Not because of us, but who we are in Christ. Go back into scripture and look at all the Colossian passages about what happens in Christ and who we are in Christ. Man, those promises are for us. And that's what, that's what this is about. What's the takeaway? Well, two things. One, God wants you to have an assurance. You know, we didn't have time to talk about chapter 17, about circumcision, but just think for a second. Abram is doubting. He's 99 now, okay? So he's even older. And God comes to him and says, you're going to have a kid. And he tells him, no, no, just make the promise happen with, with, with Isaac. Make, make the, sorry. Thank you, Ishmael. Uh, make the promise happen with him. I'm, I'm too old. And God's like, no, I'm going to make the promise happen with you. And not only am I going to make the promise happen with you, here's this new sign for you. It's called circumcision. Which means basically every single day of his life, he's going to see the reminder of the covenant. Right? Think about where he was circumcised at. So what's the point? The point is every day I'm supposed to see this visible, tangible reminder of who, how good God is and what he's going to accomplish. You don't think that's about assurance? Like we're supposed to have that. We're supposed to be able to draw near to God with full what? That's one of the big takeaways. And we're going to practice that today when we come to communion. I want you to come today in assurance. 
Sometimes we come to the table um, in, in, a, in a mode of repentance, and I don't think that's incorrect. And, and don't hear me. Uh, we should take the, the cup and the bread in a manner worthy. We should. But I want us to come today confident because of this. When's the next time we see darkness fall on the earth? Mark chapter 15, 33 says that when God is taking his last breath, God through God in person, Jesus Christ taking his last breath, darkness falls on the land. And Jesus is literally ripped to pieces to keep the covenant of promise that we couldn't keep. From darkness to darkness. So you're gonna have a chance today to come to Jesus with that assurance of who he is. Don't let weakness hold you back from being sure and confident of Christ. And the other is, some of us need to get our anchors down through the water and into the rock. We do. And we need to see a picture of the gospel. We need to see the gospel and we need to see it for us. Because in the end, all of our problems come down because we don't trust the promises of God. Our anchor's not all the way down. We're worried. We don't trust in God's wisdom. We're angry and bitter. We don't trust in his justice. We hate ourselves. We don't trust in his love and grace. Matter of fact, anytime we disobey ever, it's because we don't trust that God himself, his presence, is better than anything else you could possibly get by disobeying. We gotta trust God all the way to the bottom. And when we do, think about that picture. An anchor. No matter the current, no matter what direction, no matter circumstance, what stays, anchor ain't moving. I'd like to invite the um, servers for communion forward, please. And I'll invite the band up as well. Just a reminder, take a, take a minute or so if you need to. Definitely prepare your heart for communion. But when you come to communion, Come in assurance of who Christ is. And I pray that that assurance would follow you throughout this week and you would partner with what God has you to do in confidence. Let's pray. Father, you are so much better than anything we could ever imagine. God, just a small picture of you in Genesis 15 opens up our eyes to see just how magnificent and how glorious you are in the gospel. Father, what we most need is you. And so, Father, I pray for our hearts that we would see that, that we would know that, God, and that we would put the anchor of our soul into you that does not change, that does not move, and that sacrificed everything for our benefit and for his glory. So, God, be with us throughout the rest of this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.